listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for finding us and tuning in. This is Aaron Fishman. We have a special episode for you listeners today. Not that basketball focused. It's going to get heavy a little bit later where we talk about President Trump's recent executive order on immigration and the NBA community's reaction to it as well as an important International Holocaust Remembrance Day event that I attended last week and why I feel that it's important. But first, on a much, much lighter note, I'm excited to talk with my co-host Lauren Lee Chen, who had the exciting opportunity, just a thrilling experience of appearing on Jeopardy last week. He was on three episodes, one twice, total earnings of a little more than 37000 What's the backstory as I bring you in behind you being on Jeopardy, Lauren? Thanks, Aaron. First of all, it still feels really surreal that I was able to appear on the show and that I was able to do so well. I didn't expect going in that I would be able to win two games, even day of. I wasn't sure how I would compare to my competitors. Jeopardy, I think you, you may agree or disagree, but I think in my mind is one of the rare cultural institutions in our country that it seems like it crosses a lot of age ranges of people from different walks of life and different areas all seem to enjoy it or at least are aware of it and what it entails. So the ability to be up on that stage and showcase something I've really been working on or thinking about doing for the better part of my life. That was really unreal. It felt almost like a dream. That's really cool. It's kind of like a a shared collective experience, I guess you could say. Was that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, I was just trying to acknowledge. I feel like this sort of just like display of knowledge type of thing is something that people like to connect to and also especially they've done really well with the competition aspect and um, making it so it's a program that you can enjoy at home and play along with the competitors which I know a lot of people like to do yeah I think a lot of people like to watch and as you alluded to across various age ranges geographic regions ethnicities another thing I wanted to ask you I know you talked about this a little bit online. How nerve-wracking was that being just in the studio and then when you were playing the games for real in this environment? I I was nervous for you and I was at home watching. Oh, it's incredibly nerve-wracking, like being on stage for the first time, um, knowing that it's a show that's broadcast nationally that so many people watch. And also something that, a lot of people don't realize is that if you appear on Jeopardy, that's it. You're not allowed to have more than one appearance on Jeopardy in your lifetime. So that's 
a tremendous amount of pressure to put on someone to be like, here's your one shot and don't screw it up, basically. Or when I was up there, I was a good percentage of my brain power was focused on trying not to appear stupid or do something wow. dumb, you know? <laughs> like, but once you get up there for a, a little while, I think you shake off the nerves a little bit when you get more comfortable. After that starts happening, if your adrenaline level goes a little bit down, then you might start getting tired, which is the other factor <laughs> that people don't realize is really tough to deal with when you're up on the stage under the lights trying to answer, you know, 60 questions within half an hour. Again, And also airing and recording multiple episodes in a day if you win too, right? Right, right. It's incredibly draining. A lot of people don't realize that an entire week of episodes is taped essentially back to back with about a 10 minute break between each episode. So I won on Tuesday, and then after I won, I had to go backstage and change my outfit so it looked like a different day, and then come back and then immediately play Wednesday's game, even though, like, you know, I had just been up there for half an hour answering questions, and then I have to go back for another half an hour answer questions against new people. It's really tiring. But you made the most out of it. You didn't waste your one opportunity. <laughs> uh of, in your lifetime, that, that's a, you're a young guy, so you couldn't have been on Jeopardy again. That's, that's interesting. I, I don't think I knew that. One thing that people are talking online in the basketball blogging community, and I noticed too when I watched the episode, I think it was the second one where they asked you what FGM stood for. Right. And uh, we, we were um, not surprised, but relieved that you got field goals made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we knew you'd get it, but yeah, you would have never heard the end of that. Yeah, I, I definitely, when a question came up that mentioned basketball, especially the field goals made question, I really felt the pressure that I needed to get it right to uh, not let our basketball community down. Really, though, it was obvious from watching the episodes, and I, and I knew this before from going to trivia nights with you, just hanging out, that you had a really broad knowledge base. You knew a lot of stuff. I want to ask you a little bit about your strategy, but um, but yeah, it was and you knew things that surprised me too, like like the Maybelline one. The Maybelline um, question actually surprised me too. I was, was not that a, really sure how I knew that one. It was a probably I, I like guess, a forty percent guess, but yeah, maybe it has to do with just having a really good memory, being exposed to a variety of things, and it kind of seeps into your unconscious. Right. And then, then I guess when you're on Jeopardy, it ends up popping out again. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, I know it. But uh, I wanted to ask you about that strategy. When there were times that there were sports categories that showed up, and you had many opportunities to go to the sports. Obviously, you you know other things beyond sports, but was there a reason why you didn't decide to just go with the sports ones early on? Um, a couple reasons, I guess. My general strategy was to try to get rid of the categories that I was a little bit less confident in, actually, beforehand, uh, just in case 
if there was a daily double in there that I wasn't going to get, I would have less money to lose or my opponents would have less money to wager. And then if I was more confident in a sports category, if I hit a daily double in there, I would have more money to work with. It's not uh, necessarily a very sound strategy, but any strategy you use, I think the main thing about it should be that it makes you comfortable using it or like you can justify it to yourself on stage <laughs> and you could do that in this yeah. case that's good i felt really bad for hugh in the second episode he was one word off a couple times and i i mean it's so tough up there i can only imagine i think you have to be really knowledgeable and also a little bit lucky too would you agree with that it's definitely a large portion of luck, both in terms of the questions that come up and the categories that come up, as we already talked about. Like in the first two games, I was lucky enough to have a couple sports related categories early on. And I think those helped me get into a rhythm. If you have like a miss that Hugh had twice actually in our, our game that we played, it can do. I'm not saying that this is definitely what happened to him, but I I know that this effect happens because it did happen to me both in my first two games, which I was able to overcome, and in my third game, which I did let it get into my head a little bit. But if you miss a couple questions that you feel like you should have gotten, then you just start second-guessing yourself or you start trying to do something different. Or as soon as you let anything get in your head that's like distracts you at all from the game at hand then yeah it makes I it so understand. much harder yeah the first two games you were able to bounce back from slight missteps as you talked about and you were able to win with unique basketball themed final jeopardy wagers which caused a minor buzz on the internet <laughs> first i guess before we talk about the crazy reaction online articles written about it and people happy about it people pissed off about it i just want to know from your standpoint what happened with those wagers how much ahead did you plan on doing those and and how did that come about well i only planned i think one of the wagers the 301 wager and i was like if ever i get to a situation where I have the opportunity to make a wager and it won't make a difference at all to the final outcome. So in my first game, I entered Final Jeopardy with more than double of my closest opponent. So as long as I didn't wager too much, then I would have won, right? Yeah. So I wanted to be able to give a little bit of a shout out to the basketball community. And I wasn't really sure... I tried to brainstorm a little bit, but I wasn't sure how to do that in a numerical sense. And the only thing I could think of was the prevalent meme around <laughs> basketball internet at the time, you know, uh, that was often uh, repeated throughout the summer and into the fall, like, you know, don't let this distract you from the fact about the Warriors, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. that's how I came up with my first day wager. As I said, between first day and second day, we have 10 minutes to get changed and <laughs> then come back. So during those 10 minutes, I came up with the second day wager uh, 
maybe slightly less creative, but the know, same situation where if it wasn't close at the end, you do it because right. you, you need to make a mathematical decision if it was a close game going into final jeopardy. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. And um, some people thought, okay, maybe it should have been three, two, one, or whatever it was. One thing that I thought was kind of ridiculous but funny was some people, when articles were being written about you, were saying, well, he just lost money on, on a joke that a lot of people didn't get. Yep. But it's not losing money. You're wagering less. So if you didn't know the answer, then you would have lost less money. I yeah. I think it, it do- doesn't really make sense. You're just determining what to wager mm-hmm. and as we mentioned it didn't matter because you already in effect had won after double jeopardy right yeah it was dribbling out the clock a little bit <laughs> nice basketball i was surprised a little bit at some of the negative responses to be honest i realize you know obviously it's poking a little bit of fun at the warriors community but I was hoping that Warriors fan base would recognize it as just like, you know, just playful fun. A lot of people took it really negatively, which I didn't expect, but I thought Warriors fans would be a little bit less insecure, I guess yeah. I would say. But but no, not I, all Warriors fans also. No, a lot of Warriors fans of really appreciated it or like thought it was funny a lot. <laughs> yeah. They're also um, a damn good team, historically good. So it's yeah. kind of, I think it's a good time to be a Warriors fan. And I don't know if, I mean, I'm not a Warriors fan, so it's hard to guess, but I think it's positive attention. The 73 and 9, yeah. who goes 73 and 9 other than the Warriors? It doesn't happen. So I don't know. I think that's cool. People are mad, though, are sometimes on the internet. Mm-hmm. We know that. But also, wow, the outpouring of support for you, that was just incredible. I know that you've been on Twitter for a long time, as have I. And way before you were doing a podcast, you interacted with many basketball bloggers and have become friends with a lot of those guys and and women. And it's just such a tight-knit community. And they were so supportive of you, weren't they? Yeah, it was really great to see how many people reached out to me to say congratulations that they were watching the show that they were cheering me on it it just made me really appreciate our tight-knit corner of the internet in basketball world how much support we have for each other and it really shows i think from a personal standpoint it was cool for the podcast too but definitely as a friend i was really excited for you must have been incredibly thrilling that's all I have to say on the topic. Did you want to close with any note before we go to the music? No, that's all. Uh, thanks if you watched me and if it brought you here, especially thanks. But thanks to everyone for their support, and it was a really fun time. We'll be back soon, changing you. back listeners as aaron mentioned at the top of the show in this segment we're still not going to be sticking to sports we're going to be focusing on a little bit of a heavier issue 
Friday, as many of you know, was International Holocaust Remembrance Day in remembrance of the liberation of the Auschwitz camp. Aaron, this year you attended an event that was moving and emotional to you, honoring this occasion. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my late great uncle, Herschel Fishman, who passed away in March of 2015, gave a speech in 2008 where he was telling his Holocaust story. He and his brother, my grandfather, are survivors. His longtime girlfriend held an event in Torrance where they were replaying for residents of a retirement home Herschel's 2008 speech in which he tells all the details of his harrowing story, which I think is so important for future generations to remember and tell over and over so that such atrocities never happen again. It was a beautiful thing for me. Obviously, it's so depressing hearing the details of it, and we can get into some of those, but it's also uplifting. You bring up a good point that it is important to have these type of events so that we don't forget the atrocities that happened in the Holocaust to the Jewish community, especially, and so that they never happen again, something that we will probably bring up in our third segment, worries about that. I forgot to finish telling his story. I'll just briefly summarize it. So they're brothers, and they were two years apart. He was in his late teens, I believe, Herschel, Harry, as he went by, was about 17 years old. And Mendel, or Manny, uh, my grandfather, was 15. And that was when them and their parents were taken away to the camps. They were obviously lied about where they were going and told nothing would happen. They brought suitcases. They were told they'll get their belongings back. Obviously never did. A lot of people were sent to the gas chambers. Their mother was tragically sent to the gas chambers. Their father and both of them were deemed strong enough to be able to work. The Nazis got as much free labor out of the people they imprisoned as they could. And Herschel in particular went into the concentration camp. Auschwitz is where they ended up. 160 pounds. He left 70 pounds. He was able to recover for the most part. And he and, and his brother were thankful to survive it. Their father ended up dying in the cold of starvation or pneumonia. A lot of those things had uh, combined effects, but that was basically his story. And, and he told about it in such emotionless detail. And it, that was striking to me when um, watching the replay of the speech. And you wonder, well, how does he not have emotion when this is so traumatic and I think the main answer to that is that it was a coping mechanism that he kind of looks at his story from a he looked at it from a detached perspective, like it happened to someone else, because it's just too depressing yeah. for your future and for humanity yeah. to think that it happened to you. It also has to do with, I think, personality differences. My grandfather, who's still alive today, is more emotional and more vivid and colorful in telling the story. But it's so powerful that I don't think you need the color to really get a sense of the gravity of the situation. 
Yeah, definitely. Your grandfather and your great uncle were two of the few that were lucky enough to make it out of the camps. I definitely can understand how you say your great uncle. It seems like when he reflects back on his experience there, he seems detached. It definitely, to me at least, seems like such a harrowing experience that you have to sort of yeah, take yourself out of it a little bit in order right. to go on with your life. Mm-hmm. Just to move on. And, and I'm so proud of both of them. They had a tremendous amount of guilt after that they survived and they thought, why me? So many other people died. Should I have sacrificed myself? Could I have done more? Maybe sacrificed my life and other people would be alive. But they did the best they could. They survived and then they thrived living into their late 80s. And for one of them, maybe even beyond that, it's it's a tough thing. But I mentioned earlier in the segment about how it was uplifting for me. I haven't really gotten to that yet. I kind of just said why it was so depressing to hear about the details of his story again. There is a huge outpouring of support. And a lot of people in the retirement home attended this. Many of them had no obvious personal connection to the Holocaust. But um, just out of humanity or intellectual curiosity or both, more than 30 residents attended the talk. I sat in the back. I was just going to watch as an observer. And it was really cool also since he since passed away to see him moving around in real time on the, the video and hearing his voice again. But also just to be reminded of the atrocities I thought was important. But um, I thought it was so cool that so many people attended. I was just going to, like I said, sit in the back and watch. But his longtime girlfriend who organized the event called me to the front, which was a little nerve wracking for me, maybe to a lesser extent than your Jeopardy experience. I wasn't on um, national TV or anything, but all these people were asking me questions about his life and um, what I knew of his story and I'm not the most comfortable with public speaking sometimes. I got more comfortable throughout, but they were so interested. They had the best comments and questions. And the most rewarding thing for me, and I got emotional during it, almost cried, and I'll never forget it later. This woman named Erica, she said she was 92 or 93 years old. She said that she really appreciated what I had to say. Basically, my opening statement when I was called up was kind of what I alluded to before, that it's so important for the younger generations to keep telling these stories because, and and this relates to what's going on now, when a certain group is targeted by their religion or their faith, what they believe in, how they look, we have to speak out. We can't be silent and let this occur. I think it's important for young people, people our age, the future generations to know that because as she pointed out when she raised her hand, she said she's 92 and she's not going to be alive much longer, as sad as that is to admit. And neither are her friends in the home. Again, you don't want to admit that, but it's, it's the reality of the situation. Holocaust survivors are dying every day. If they were in their teens, they're in their late 80s now or early 90s. And so we just have to speak up. And and when she said that she was 
too scared about the present climate of division and hate and how people are fearful, but it encouraged her. It warmed her heart that I talked about how important it is to speak out in the face of injustice and oppression. I was so flattered that she would say that, that that I could provide some positivity because really I, I don't like what's going on either, but I'm also optimistic. There are a lot of things that can be done and we can do. The community is coming together in a lot of really cool ways. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Hopefully for our generation, we realize that in this pivotal time, it is important to use our voices, especially if we have a platform, however small it may be, to use our voices to speak out against injustices so something like the Holocaust can never happen again, hopefully. There's a thing on the internet that people say a lot of times when they don't agree with your viewpoints. Sports fans like to do it a lot. They tell writers and just personalities in general to stick to sports. I'm glad we didn't on this episode. There are things that are more important, more consequential, things that transcend sports. And that's this uh, recent executive action involving immigration. And in response to that, many others aren't sticking to sports either. And for that, I'm grateful. That includes pro sports athletes, coaches, executives, writers. To backtrack a little, I want to explain why I firmly believe that the protesting and speaking out against the executive order is completely justified. I have three main points. First of all, President Trump, during his campaign, he openly talked about a Muslim ban, advocated for it, using that term explicitly. He walked it back later in the campaign, but it it was he who brought up that term in the first place. Secondly, in the text of the executive order, there's an exemption for persecuted Christians. So the writers of the executive order have brought up the issue of faith and religion. It was not the protesters that brought that up. And finally, Rudy Giuliani, who's been a close advisor of Trump's throughout the campaign and is still linked with him, said in a Fox News interview that Donald Trump asked him how to make a Muslim ban work legally. So those are the three reasons for me why I believe that. And the NBA community has been extremely opinionated and united in their outrage at this executive action. Tim Cato, who we had as a guest last season, he aggregated opinions from people around the league on the ban. That's a really interesting read and and very powerful. Yeah, it's been uplifting to see all of the voices from the NBA speak out against this action. A couple that stood out to me particularly were Warriors head coach Steve Kerr, who himself, his father, was killed in an act of terror. He was assassinated in the Middle East while Kerr was a freshman in college. Steve Kerr just puts forward in his quote, instead of banishing these people that we're scared of from coming to this country, we have to recognize what they're going through to have compassion and really abide by the principles of this country to provide hope instead of creating fear. Another one that stuck out to me was Luol Deng, who himself was a refugee from South Sudan, who says that he would not be where he is today if it weren't for the opportunities to find refuge 
First, he went as a refugee to Great Britain and then was able to come to the United States from South Sudan, escaping the atrocities that were happening there to him and his family. And Masai Ujiri, the president of the Raptors, another person who is an immigrant, he's a native of Nigeria, not one of the countries named in the immigration ban, but as an immigrant, he talks a lot about how the United States and Canada have given him the opportunity to make a better life for himself and that he still views America as a land of opportunity and he doesn't want that perception to go away in these countries where we're walling ourselves off from them. And one of Masai Ujiri's players on the Raptors, Kyle Lowry, had a poignant response. Some people would say it was disrespectful. I think it was called for given these tumultuous times. He said, um, I think it's expletive for BS. He said BS five different times. And then when a reporter jokingly asked him after that, do you want to clean it up for print? He said, no, you guys know how to censor it, basically. And that's how I really feel. And I admire that he didn't give a politically correct answer or try to clean it up because this is a very tough time. People are struggling. People are fearful. When you reject refugees, you're putting their lives at risk. And you can legitimately argue that it's a life and death issue. And he treated that in, with his response with the gravity that it deserved, I believe. And it's not about the bottom line at all. A lot of times athletes or entertainers skirt important issues because they don't want to offend someone who believes differently than they do sociopolitically. But right now, these NBA players do not care about losing fans, do not care about losing money for the league. They're all about making an important statement about, as Aaron said, a life and death issue. I want to ask Lauren a question. I saw the basketball Twitter community a lot of people were prompting donations from readers for the ACLU. Can you give a little more context behind that? Yeah, the basketball community and the NBA community has come together and seemingly spoken with a united voice on this. Among us in the internet community, I know there have been various different raffles run where if you sent someone a screenshot of your donation to the ACLU. I know Adam Reisinger, editor at ESPN NBA, he ran a raffle where he was raffling off a signed Hakeem Olajuwon basketball. I know Nate Jones, Jones on the NBA, he was raffling off sets of either game-worn or new sneakers for people who donated to the ACLU, and it's just a great cause. The ACLU is doing a lot of good work trying to combat this executive order over the weekend. They won a temporary victory by getting a judge to institute a temporary stay during which they can figure out whether or not it should be ultimately put into place or not. So they're doing really great work there. And we believe, the three of us, I feel like I can speak for, if you do have the means that it's a cause that's worthy of putting some of your dollars towards to donate to the ACLU or donate to other causes such as CAIR, the Council on American Islamic Relations, or some of the many other organizations that are working hard to fight this. You're right, Lauren. There have been so many brave groups standing up for affected individuals. 
the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, they've just been dogged in their attempts in court to fight this executive order. And as you mentioned, have had some temporary success and aren't going to give up any time soon, buoyed by all those donations from regular people. And also so many people have been donating their time as well. The attorney general, former attorney general, who was since fired by the administration, refused to enforce the executive order on the grounds that it was unlawful and possibly unconstitutional. So a lot has been going on. The fight continues. I just want to quickly highlight also the main problems people have with the executive order very briefly. Some Congress people who may otherwise support it just say that it's too broad, that it causes too much confusion with green card holders, visa holders. Supposedly they were supposed to be exempt or there was intent to exempt them, but that wasn't stated explicitly. So many of them were detained. Also, it's seemingly pretty arbitrary which seven countries were selected because there are many other Muslim majority countries and not one individual hailing from one of those seven countries has committed an act of terrorism on U.S. soil. And then just more generally, that the executive order shows a lack of compassion for people and that in this tumultuous time where refugees is at an all-time high second to after World War II, this is not the time to be temporarily barring refugees. Those are the main criticisms. I want to end on a quote that I think is really appropriate for this time. This is Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly.